Good afternoon. It's good as always to be with you. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. If you're new to the church, if you have been visiting and you haven't yet met one of the elders or elders in training in person, just know that we would love to meet you. Uh, we're not trying to pressure you or anything, but we would love a chance to meet you personally, uh, put a name to a face. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open them, uh, first of all, to Matthew 13. We're going to stop by there on our way to where we're going this afternoon. Uh, Matthew 13. And once you get there in your Bibles, you can hold the spot, and we'll go ahead and pray. Father God, come before you this afternoon, and we ask for you to speak. Lord, we know that long ago, in many times, in many ways, you spoke through the prophets. Yet in these last days, you have spoken to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and it is in the written word where we can behold Christ, where we can hear his words, where we can receive from him the words of life that he gave. We might know you, and we might know what life is, and we might know what you want for us. From us, God, we ask, Lord, that as we turn to your scriptures now, that Christ would be magnified, that by your spirit we would hear and we would believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard a story in the past that really taught you something? For me, one such story when I was a kid was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you're not familiar with the story, it was written by C.S. Lewis and tells the story of four siblings named Peter, uh, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy who discover in the middle of World War II a magical wardrobe that takes them to the land of Narnia. And in the land of Narnia, things are different than here. Right? They're kind of uh, living in kind of like a medieval kind of time, and animals can talk. And the land is just covered by snow because there's this white witch that has cursed the land with an eternal winter. Now, this book, you know, it's a kid's book. There's lots of interesting images and, and things that happen throughout it. But near the end of the book, there is this scene where Aslan, who is this majestic lion, the son of the emperor across the sea, he he comes and they're going to battle with the white witch. But the night before everything's supposed to go down, the white witch and him have a conversation. And then in the middle of the night, Aslan leaves the camp and Susan and Lucy, they, they follow him. They go with him and he's despondent and he is um, going to the scene at the stone table where he is going to be killed. And he goes in the middle of the night to offer himself willingly as a sacrifice so that Edmund, who had betrayed the others in the course of the story, could be redeemed and set free. And I remember, I was pretty young, I was probably eight or nine when I was uh, reading this story, and I remember feeling so struck as a young boy with this scene of Aslan, who was shaved, right? they shaved his mane off, humiliated and beaten, mocked, and finally killed. I remember I couldn't stop thinking about what this story meant. And I also remember feeling so excited when in the next scene, Aslan returned resurrected and triumphant. And the themes of redemption and courage and good and evil and sacrifice and resurrection, they were all so captivating to me in that story. And they were taught to me in a way that even though I was raised in the church, I hadn't really thought about. Most of us know that stories can stick with us. And maybe there's a story you're thinking of right now. They can inspire us, and they really can teach. And I bring this up because for the next seven weeks, we're going to be doing a 
mini-series here at Zoe between our study and normal books of the Bible. We're going to be going through a short summer series focusing on stories that teach. And these aren't just any stories. They're not going to be like, I'm not going to go through like Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe and um, Hunger Games or something. Um, but we're going to be talking about stories from Jesus, right? parables that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke. So by way of introduction then, just for this whole series, we need to talk a little bit about what parables are. The word parable, if you aren't familiar with it, is a word that comes from the Greek word parabole, which means something that is thrown alongside of something else. And the reason that word was used by the Greeks was that a parable is something that that comes along with something else to help you understand or explain it. Does that make sense? On its most basic level, a parable is just an analogy. Okay, so if you've ever been trying to talk to someone about an idea or a concept and you said, it's kind of like how... XYZ, then you yourself are a speaker of parables. And in the Bible, parables show up in the Old and New Testaments. And they're particularly interesting to us, not just because they're in the Bible, but because there were many parables spoken by Jesus. In fact, over 30 parables of Jesus are recorded in the Gospels. And his parables, they were of various lengths, but they normally took the form of a story with regular human characters happening in everyday life, and it taught spiritual truth to those who listened. So they were stories that taught spiritual realities in everyday terms. Now, there's one more thing we need to be said, or that needs to be said about parables before we get into this series. I ask you to turn to Matthew 13. You can look at verses 10 through 12 with me. Jesus himself said that the purpose of his parables was twofold. Matthew 13, verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So in other words, Jesus said that the reason he spoke in so many parables at times in his ministry was to, to, to do two things, right? It was a double-edged sword that cut both ways. On the one hand, parables could teach. They could enlighten those who would hear them and understand them. They could deepen the understanding of a person who desires to know more about God and the kingdom of heaven. But at the same time, they can confuse those who don't understand how much they need to learn. They can turn off the person who has no spiritual desire. They can frustrate. So for us to teach a series on parables is kind of a dangerous thing. It's our hope, then, that as a church, we would have ears to hear in these parables what Jesus wants to tell us about God's kingdom. So turn with me to Luke 10. Today, the first parable that we're going to begin with in this short series on parables from Luke is one of the most famous parables in the Bible. It is a parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke 10, starting in verse 25. Now, this parable is a story that teaches... And what this story teaches us is our need for love. We're going to go through this by looking at the story in three parts as we seek to understand. First, the conversation. Second, the chronicle. And then thirdly, the correction. So beginning in Luke 10, verse 25, we're going to start with the conversation. Now, just because it's different than how I normally do it, I'm going to prepare you. I'm not going to read through the whole text at first and then explain it as I go back. I'm going to go through it kind of piece by piece as necessary. 
And the reason is that we kind of want to see, just as the story goes on, how interesting and unexpected a lot of the things that Jesus says really are. So starting in verse 25, this is what is written. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So let's stop right here. The context of this is that Jesus has been teaching, he's been ministering, and there is someone who stands up, and he's a lawyer who wants to put Jesus to the test. Now, just to clarify, to clear up any misunderstandings, we need to understand what a lawyer was in those days. Because if you're thinking kind of like primetime law show or something, that's not right, right? A lawyer wasn't someone who engaged in litigation and suing people. Rather, the term lawyer in Greek, as used in Israel during that time, referred to someone who was an expert in the law. Does that make sense? Okay, they're not a lawyer like they're going to court. They're a lawyer that they study the law and they know a lot about it and they teach it. So instead of thinking like um, some guy from Suits, right, it's better to think an expert in the Jewish scriptures, maybe a professor of Old Testament at like Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And this man who shows up in the story, he wants to put Jesus to the test to see how he will answer an important question. The question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a good question. Jesus responds to that question with his own question and then engages the man in a fascinating conversation. Verse 26, he, that's Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So if you want to be seen as really wise, always answer a question with your own question. And so Jesus does here. Instead of answering outright, he asks the expert in the law, what is written in the law? And this man, he's a lawyer. Right? He, he's supposed to be the person who knows about the scriptures to teach it, so he can't refuse this, this question. He's the expert, and so he answers as he has been taught, as he has been thinking in verse 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, this isn't surprising to us, right? If you've been in the church at all, this isn't a surprising answer. You know that this is kind of the answer that you were expecting because this is what Christians are all about. But it is an interesting answer, actually, for that point in time. Interesting enough, the lawyer doesn't say, keep the Ten Commandments, even though the Ten Commandments were kind of the pinnacle of the law, right? If you think about the story of the Bible, the Old Testament, God himself wrote the Ten Commandments and gave them to Moses, the, the rabbis and teachers of the law, they saw the Ten Commandments as the kind of synopsis of just everything that God desired for his people to do. Even though there were other laws on top of it, the Ten Commandments were central. And yet, he doesn't say the Ten Commandments. He says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so what the lawyer does is he goes instead to these two different summary statements from different parts of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, it's the famous Shema. This is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then in Leviticus 19.18, after a series of commands about how you are to love other people, this is what is written. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what's going on here? By answering this way, this teacher of the law, this expert in the Old Testament scriptures, he was actually expressing, I think, the most cutting edge, the best biblical scholarship of his time. To the Ten Commandments, they were central to the law. 
But over the past centuries, the teachers of the law had, had come to examine the law and see these two passages as important summaries of the commands of the Torah and even as summaries of the Ten Commandments themselves. If you think about the Ten Commandments, if you remember what they are, and you don't have to know all of them by heart, just know that the first four commandments, the first half, the first tablet, talked about how you interact with God. And then the second tablet, the last six, talked about how you interacted with other people. And so the the Hebrew scholars, they started to see, as this man saw, that Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 summed up the Ten Commandments and summed up the law. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the answer he gives to Jesus. And Jesus responds to the man. What's he going to say? Is he going to correct him? Is he going to disagree with him? Well, in verse 28, it turns out the man has given a good answer. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The answer to love God, to love your neighbor was right. This answer was exactly what Jesus himself had said to people who had asked him the same question in other parts of his ministry. And so at this point, at least for me, when I'm reading the story the first time, it's surprising. And I think it should be to us too. It's a little bit um, Star Wars-like to me. You know what I'm saying? When uh, Darth Vader is fighting Obi-Wan and you're like, I'm not sure who the master of the student is because the master just died I think as you're reading this story, at face value, this text basically says that the lawyer asked Jesus a hard question, and Jesus asked him, what do you think? And he told him, and Jesus said, yep, right, that's it, case closed, it's over, right? The guy already knew he didn't need Jesus to teach him anything. That's what it seems at this point in the passage. But if you're thinking this way, you're wrong. And I'll show you why, because you have to read verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, this verse is so important for us because this verse begins with an extremely important word, which is but. Jesus said, you have answered correctly, and yet verse 29 starts with a but. While on the surface we might think Jesus and the lawyer are saying the exact same thing, they're on the same page, what Luke tells us is they're not. What is the difference? The answer is in the text. The lawyer wanted to justify himself. That's what Luke tells us. To justify yourself means to prove to others that you are righteous. By your own means to show yourself to have done all the requirements of the law. And in verse 29, it tells us that what the lawyer meant when he asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What he actually meant was what is the bare minimum a person must do to make sure they go to heaven? What are the steps that I need to take to make sure that when I die, I'm not going to go to Sheol, I'm going to go to be with God? What are the three steps that must be taken to make sure that I live and not die? And that's why in verse 29, he follows up to justify himself with this added question, and who is my neighbor. Who exactly do I have to love? You know, when I was younger um, and I would um, play video games, we had um, an old computer in my house. Right? My parents, they never bought me a new computer um, because they were cheap, not because we couldn't afford it. And 
I wanted to play these video games that came out on the computer. And some of you don't even know what this is like, right? You play with consoles and stuff. But back then, when you bought a computer game, you would have to find out before you ever bought it what the system requirements were, right? And you would have to make sure that your computer could meet the minimum system requirements just so you could even run the game, right? You needed to know what was the lowest financial investment you could make and still be able to play this game on your own time. And this is how the lawyer was thinking. Right? He says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But then he wants to know who exactly is my neighbor because he wants to know what are the minimum things that I can do or someone can do and still get in to heaven. I think that the way that the lawyer thinks is often how we think about Christianity. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while. Maybe you're someone who's not sure if you're a Christian. And this is what you think about the Christian concept of eternal life. That it's simply a reward for having to give up fun things in life or having to do hard things. And if you are not a religious person, maybe it seems like some sort of way to control other people. But maybe if you are a religious person, it seems like a system that you can game. You want to know what are the minimum number of fun, bad things I have to give up or the minimum number of hard things I have to do so that God will accept me. And I remember once I had a discussion with a friend of mine who asked me, and we were in church when he asked us, he said, if you could pick any sin to not actually be a sin, which one would you pick and why? Or if there's something you could wish you could do that was bad, but still get to heaven, what would it be? And see, when we think this way, like the lawyer, it leads to legalism, which makes sense because he's a teacher of the law, which is wanting to prove yourself righteous by fulfilling the external requirements of the law. But Jesus has more in mind than that. Pastor Kenny, he likes to say that Jesus is mysterious and that when he speaks, he's always going to make you think. So what this verse and this conversation shows us interestingly enough, is that someone can be exactly right about something and still get it wrong. Someone can answer correctly but can still be thinking wrongly. And that should frighten us and it should cause us to wonder what Jesus is going to say because it can happen to us. When we see the commands of the Bible as a way to justify ourselves, we are asking the wrong question. In verses 25 through 29, the conversation shows that loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself is not about how to earn your way to heaven or how to make yourself righteous. When Jesus talks to the man about eternal life, he is not referring to simply a reward of the afterlife. He is talking about true life that starts now and goes on forever. How do we know this? Because Jesus often talked about eternal life in this other, more profound, deeper way. The phrase translated here, eternal life, in the question is zoein aeonion. The first is a form of the word zoe, which is the name of our church. It means in Greek, true life. And the second term, aeonion, is a term that means lasting forever. So what Jesus is talking about is eternal life that lasts forever, true life that goes on and on. And while it includes the afterlife, we need to understand Jesus spoke about eternal life in ways that couldn't simply mean what happens after you die. In John 4, when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, whoever drinks of the living water that I will give him will have a spring of water welling up inside him into eternal life. He said in John 12, 50, that the Father's commandment is eternal life. He said in John 17, 23, perhaps most famously, this is eternal life, that you know God 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life, it's not just what happens after you die. As one pastor told me when I was 18 years old, what Jesus said is that eternal life isn't something that starts then. It's something that can start right now. You might even say that Jesus is taking this religious question about rules and regulations and minimum requirements, and he's making it into a big worldview question. He doesn't want to have a conversation just about rules and requirements, but about identity and meaning and purpose. In other words, when Jesus talks about eternal life, he's talking about what on earth are we meant to be and do. So we're looking at this, and we haven't even gotten to the parable. But have you ever asked that question? What is eternal life? Not how do I become immortal, but what is true, lasting life? What am I supposed to do with my life even now? However you phrase the question, the conversation between Jesus and the lawyer tells us we need to ask this question. We are made in the image of God. This world is a fallen place. We know that the way that we naturally live, so many of us, isn't actually truly living. And so this conversation about true life that lasts forever needs to meet us where we're at. The natural question might be, what do I need to do to get to heaven? That's how the lawyer says it. But Jesus says that the greatest commandments, love God and love others, they're not about what you need to do before you die. They are instead the very essence of life itself. You see, following rules to get to heaven misses the point completely. What the law teaches is that there is no heaven without God. There is no reward without relationships. There is no true life without love. And so Jesus said, do this and you will live. Jesus says, your words are right. You said love, 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 but you were still thinking about the law. And so there is something that needs to be corrected. And this leads us then to the story or the chronicle, which gives us a picture of this love that we were meant to live. Jesus answers the second question of the lawyer with this story, which is our parable. And as we go through the story, I'm just going to make some notes as we read it so we can get the force of the words the way the people of Jesus' day would as best as we can with my limited ability. Let's start in verse 30, Luke 10, 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So the story Jesus tells, this parable, takes place on a road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And I'm not going to belabor the point, but basically it's about 17 miles and it passes through desert and rocky country. And so a lot of people will say this was like prime land for robbers to be hanging out. And really what they mean by that is not that it was like a, a place that was innately dangerous, but what they mean is that people didn't live there. Okay, that's what made it dangerous. People didn't live in that area. It was a place for people to walk through, to pass by. And so it's interesting to note that Jesus answers the question of who exactly is my neighbor by starting his story off in a place where nobody lives. It should clue us in that he's not really going to answer the question the way the lawyer is thinking. Again, when Jesus speaks, he's going to make us think. 
So case in point, the man in the country is not someone who lives there. He's walking through. He doesn't even have a companion with him, but he's traveling by himself. And then he is found by robbers. He is stripped and beaten and left alone, half dead. And verse 31 continues with a second character arriving. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. You can stop right there. A priest was a spiritual leader in Israel. He would have been tasked with performing the religious rites that were part of the sacrificial system at the temple, such as offering sacrifices or helping people know what to do when they came to the temple. He would have been seen as a spiritual leader. So if you're just trying to figure out what they would have thought when they heard a priest, you could basically think a pastor or you could even think an actual priest. We still have priests today, not in our church, but the Catholic Church has priests. Other religions, they have people who are priests. They're supposed to be spiritual people. Um, just not in Judaism because the tabernacle and temple are gone. So if you were hearing this story and you heard that a priest showed up, it would sound to you like good news. And it's kind of funny. Jesus actually wants us to think that. If you read the text carefully, Jesus uses the words by chance, right? As luck would have it to emphasize this. It's like it's serendipity that this priest shows up. He wants you to think as if you're in a grocery store and you find out that you just lost your parent to this disease they were fighting with for years and and you're sad and you need counsel and you turn the corner and there's the pastor, right? He's standing right there. It's like, man, good luck, right? The pastor's right here just when I need counsel and help. This is awesome. But the second half of verse 31 is what follows. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. This religious leader sees the man And he walks the other way. Jesus doesn't tell us why. Maybe he didn't want to be defiled by the body if he thought it was dead. Maybe he was afraid to get robbed himself. Maybe he figured it was too late. There was nothing to do to help. We don't know. But instead of focusing on what we don't know, just see what Jesus actually says. Jesus said he saw him. It isn't an oversight. It's not a mistake. It's a failure of response. And again, it's as if you were in that grocery store. You just found out that you had lost a parent. You're struggling with grief in the moment and you call your pastor and as you call him, you hear a buzzing sound in the other aisle and you look over and there's the pastor and he holds his phone in his hand and you see him swipe your number away. The priest didn't miss him. He saw him. He passed by on the other side. We're meant to understand this is sad. And luckily, this road isn't as empty as it could be. Shortly afterwards, verse 32, another man shows up. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, again, we should stop right there. This time, it's a Levite, another religious official in Israel, part of the temple, a privileged group in Jewish society who was responsible for teaching people how to deal with holy things, having people obey the rules of worship and sacrifice who would be seen as someone who would understand the law and how it applied to people's lives, this Levite comes, verse 32, and when he came to the same place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So two men have come by. Two men have seen this man who is half dead and in need, and they pass by. Now, this is a very famous parable. Nothing I've said is surprising you. You guys already know the story. But I want you to just, for a moment, think about what you would be thinking if you were hearing this story for the first time. Okay, so you've heard two guys, two religious people, they come and they see the same thing and they do the same thing. They walk on the other side of the road. They avoid the problem. What exactly would you be feeling or expecting? 
One commentator I read pointed out that this sort of story structure was common at the time of Jesus. And I did some digging. It turns out this structure is not just common with Jesus. It's common today, and it was common for as long as people have been telling stories. Some literary critics, they call it the rule of three. Um, there's different ways to explain it, but let me read what one um, storytelling website said, okay? Three is the smallest number required to create and then diverge from a pattern. So it's especially common in storytelling. Does that make sense? Right? Two, that's not a pattern, right? You gotta go one, two, and then the third one's gonna be different. So the third of three siblings succeeds after both older siblings have failed. The protagonist is given three tests and passes the third after failing the first two. It's fairly unusual to find a folktale that does not incorporate the rule of three in some form. Humans love to tell stories that have three parts. We love to give sermons that have three parts, right? This is just how we do it. It's in our nature. It makes a lot of sense. And so I think if you were to hear this story for the first time, at the very least, this is what we could say you would feel. The first two guys did the same thing. They have to be a setup for the third. Right? Jesus was setting you up to listen closely to what happens next. The next person is going to succeed where the priest and Levite failed. The next person would be the payoff. He would be the solution. He would be the chosen one, so to speak. And that leads us to verse 33. Jesus gets to the third act of his story, the longest part of this parable. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The rule of three, the setup. The two men had failed, and the one who would succeed turns out to be a Samaritan. Now, I already said that Jesus' answer and story wouldn't be what was expected, but we need to understand that this would have completely blown the people listening to the story away. It would have shocked them. It would have disturbed them. They would have been maybe angry that this is where the story went because the person who helps, who does what he should do, is not someone who understands the law better than the priest and the Levite at all. He's a Samaritan. Now, his identity as a Samaritan is surprising for a number of reasons. Maybe you've heard before that Samaritans and Jews hated one another, that there was this ethnic animosity between the groups. And that's kind of true, but it's an oversimplification, okay? In reality, Samaritans and Jews were very, very, very similar ethnically. In fact, there are, strangely enough, about 800 Samaritans still living today in the world, okay? Not here, um, but in the Middle East. And they've done genetic tests on them, and they are pretty much the same as Jewish people. They have the same genetic markers. There's not much difference between the two groups. And so the differences between them, they weren't about genetics. They weren't about the looks. They weren't about the way they dressed. There was something else at play for why they disliked each other so much. And it turns out it comes down to the law. Because Samaritans, they viewed the law of God completely differently than Jews. The Samaritans to a Jewish person, and especially to an expert in the law, would be seen as a mockery of everything that a lawyer held dear. Let me explain. The Samaritans were descended from Israel. They were people from the north who stayed in the land after the exile. But the Samaritans, they only accepted the first five books of the Pentateuch. Okay, so in the Bible, they only accepted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy as actually being scripture from God. What they believed is that Eli, the famous high priest, had made a counterfeit Ark of the Covenant and had eventually led the whole movement of Israel's worship to Jerusalem. 
They believed that the entire Jewish faith was a false religion. We just taught from First and Second Samuel, right? You guys remember that as a church? We just taught from these two books of Scripture. The Samaritans believed that all of that was propaganda. That really things had gone wrong a long time ago, that everything happening in Jerusalem was a fraud. They hated the temple. They hated the temple system. They hated the priesthood in Jerusalem. They hated the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the synagogues, the teachers of the law, all of that. And in fact, in the Bible, they were expressly set against the rebuilding of the temple after the people returned from Babylon. The Samaritans taught that the true worship of God had stayed with these northerners and that everything in Jerusalem was fake. And according to them, Mount Gerizim was the place that you were supposed to worship. See, the Samaritans, if you were a teacher of the law, if you were an expert in the Old Testament, the Samaritans were the worst because they twisted the Scripture. They, they, they hijacked the Scriptures. They perverted them to support their practices and their beliefs. To the Lord, there could not be anyone he would less like to consider a neighbor than a Samaritan. And that's exactly why Jesus makes this man a Samaritan in his story. Now, we should note that Jesus does not say the Samaritans were right about any of that. In fact, in John 4, when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman, he said explicitly, you Samaritans don't know what you're doing. The Jews do know what they're doing. The Samaritans were wrong. And yet Jesus still makes the man who helps in the story a Samaritan. And it would have been surprising. And it would have been, frankly, uncomfortable for those people to hear. Now, why does he do it? We're going to talk about that again in the last point of this message. So just hold that thought. But it's surprising identity. It's not just the identity that's surprising. It's also the compassion. Look at verse 34. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The compassion of the Samaritan is surprising, especially in light of what the first two did. You know, it's easy when you're like a kid to read this story or hear this story and think, Man, how dare those guys not stop to help someone? But as an adult who has sometimes tried to help people, honestly, it's not that surprising at all. It's not that shocking at all that you would see an accident and you would drive the other way. That you would see a person in need and you would lock the door or turn your eyes and avert his gaze. It's not surprising at all. And yet the Passion of the Samaritan is surprising, particularly the willingness to get involved himself in this man's plight. Notice in verse 34, the Samaritan goes to the man and he himself binds up his wounds. He gets involved. He gets his hands dirty. Then he pours oil and wine, his own possessions, which would have been costly. He uses them to try to help and heal this stranger. Then he sets him on his own animal, which again, maybe sounds like an obvious thing to do, except for the fact that these donkeys aren't particularly strong. If he's going to put this Dying man on his donkey, it means that he's going to have to walk. He's going to walk the rest of the way. And then he brings him to an inn, and again, he doesn't just drop him off. It says that that first night, he himself took care of the man. The personal commitment, the concern, the involvement, it's all surprising. Because this man is a stranger. I don't know how many of us would do something like this for someone we didn't know. So the identity is surprising. The compassion is surprising. And then thirdly, the generosity is surprising in verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
We have to recognize that Jesus gets much more detailed in this story once he reveals the Samaritan. And part of what he details for us is this man's commitment to care for this stranger, even at cost to himself. He spends his day and night caring for the man, and then the next day he gives the innkeeper two denarii, which would be equal to two days' pay, enough money to get him through more than the needs that he has for that day, and he instructs him to care for the man while he's gone until he returns. And then when he comes back, he's going to pay for whatever it is extra that was needed. And the point here, I think, is that he goes above and beyond. He gives the innkeeper more than he needs. He promises that when he will return, he will pay back whatever more he spends. It's a blank check. And again, as a kid, that didn't mean much to me. As an adult, doing my own checkbook, it means a lot. If you've ever tried to help someone, you know that to, to say something like, I will help you with whatever you need, it's not just a commitment for one day. It's going to be a commitment for quite a while. Jesus doesn't say anything at all about the man who was robbed. He doesn't say whether he was a good guy, a bad guy, whether he was thankful or grateful, whether he was even conscious, whether he's getting better. But he does tell us that the Samaritan opened up his heart and his wallet. In response to who is my neighbor, Jesus gives instead a tale of two men who failed to be neighbors and one who actually loved someone as himself. It's a story that shows us the picture of love. And as memorable as it is, it finally leads us to the end of this passage, which is the correction. We've seen the conversation, the chronicle, and finally the correction, which comes from verses 36 and 37. Look with me at these verses. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, that's the teacher of the law, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. As Jesus ends his story, he issues one final question. Which of the three guys proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And it's kind of a strange thing to ask because it's not exactly what the man had asked in the first place. He said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asked, which of these guys proved to be a neighbor? And as we see Jesus force the man to think about his story, what we need to realize is Jesus is starting to correct him. He's correcting the question about who is my neighbor and showing that the man was asking the wrong thing altogether. Now remember, the man was trying to determine the minimum requirements, right? The, the things he has to do to get to heaven the criteria for who exactly he had to love as himself in order to be justified by the law. And after Jesus made it clear that the love for God and others was actually the goal, not just the requirements, the man asked who he needed to love, and Jesus tells this story. He makes the third person a Samaritan, and I promised I would address why, so we're going to do that here. Uh, turn with me to Leviticus 19.18, okay? I mentioned already Leviticus 19.18, that passage that talks about Loving your neighbor as yourself. It's going to take a little bit of legwork, but we're going to see what's going on. Leviticus 19, 18. Read with me. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice here that the law mentions the sons of your own people. 
right? You guys see that? The sons of your own people before commanding that one should love his neighbor as himself. So let's start to connect the dots here, okay? Jesus knows that the lawyer is thinking that to fulfill the law of loving my neighbor as myself, I need to love the sons of my own people. He knows that the lawyer probably thinks it applies to those who follow God, other devout Jews. Jesus knows all this. And so when he asks the question, if you look at verse 37, the lawyer answers the question, but he can't even say the words of Samaritan. Right? He asks him, who proved to be a neighbor? And the man just says, the one who showed him mercy. It's too hard for him to even say what Jesus wants him to recognize. And I think it shows us that Jesus used the Samaritan in the story to make his point in the most powerful way to this lawyer. Jesus used the Samaritan because the question, who is my neighbor, it implies something that God never intended when he wrote Leviticus 19.18. Namely, that by knowing who your neighbor is, you could presume to know who isn't a neighbor. You could presume to know who you don't have to love like yourself. And that's what Jesus is correcting. Why does he say a Samaritan? Because it's exactly the kind of person the lawyer would automatically assume wouldn't be his neighbor. He's the kind of person the lawyer would assume this command would never apply to. You know, I just watched uh, Indiana Jones 5. Okay, you guys know it just came out. Pretty good movie, actually, so don't, don't believe the bad news about it. Um, Indiana Jones is great. I love it. And the reason we love Indiana Jones is because he's always fighting Nazis, right? And I could think that maybe we could tell the story in a way where we would feel the same way that this guy would. Just imagine I tell you the story of the Good Samaritan, but I say the third guy who shows up is a Nazi. And he does all these things to the man. And then, and then Jesus asks me, who proved to be a neighbor to this man? And I would say the, I wouldn't be able to say it. I wouldn't want to say it. Right? Because it can't be the case. I would say the one who showed mercy just like this man did because it's just not right. Right? I would assume that if there's someone in the world who wouldn't be my neighbor, it's a Nazi. If this doesn't work for you, just put in whatever kind of person you think is obviously not somebody you need to love. Is obviously not your neighbor and you get the picture of why Jesus did that. He's not saying that your neighbor is the person who helps you. He builds the story in a way to make the the, the conclusion, a correction. Jesus doesn't say Samaritans are right. He doesn't say, well, Samaritans are people too. He doesn't suggest that what they're doing is good or suggest that doing good and loving other people is more important than knowing about God. As if love for other people overrides everything else. He doesn't do any of that. But Jesus forces the lawyer to see that assuming that someone might not be your neighbor falls far short of God's intent in his law and his commands. And we do this all the time. At least I do it all the time. I can be so comfortable thinking that I'm doing good, right? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm, I've got it down. I'm loving people. And it's not because I actually have got it all down. It's because I assume that there are limitations to God's command to love him and love others. And I also assume that those limitations just happen to line up with what makes me uncomfortable. Isn't that the way that we often think? Here's the truth about the command. The command to love the Lord your God and your love your neighbor as yourself is unlimited. 
These are not minimum system requirements. They are the whole goal of the system. By making the Samaritan the clear neighbor to the man in this passage, Jesus forces the lawyer to recognize that the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, can be anyone and everyone who God puts into your life. And that's a, that's a difficult thing. Far better question than who is the neighbor I must love is what does it mean for me to be a loving neighbor? And the person who truly asks this question will experience eternal life in a way that the lawyer wasn't even considering when he stood up to test Jesus. And it leads to the final words of Jesus in this passage. The specific command, the charge for the man when Jesus says, you go and do likewise. What does this command mean? It means go and prove yourself a neighbor. Go and show others mercy. Now, we spoke about mercy a few weeks back in Jude. But mercy is help that we don't deserve, but that we desperately need. So, here's the thing. If you're struggling with purpose in life, if you're wondering why you're here, what you're supposed to do, why you feel so aimless, understand that the Bible actually gives us the answer that we're supposed to love God with everything that is in us and in a similar way, love our neighbors as ourselves. Love the people around you, and if you do that, you will never lack opportunities as long as you stop trying to define who isn't your neighbor. Prove yourself a neighbor to those who are in your life. Jesus says you will experience life. And this is incredibly challenging stuff. Okay, So just by way of application, let, let's, let's think about this a little bit. It means, and I'm just going to speak for myself, it means that my calculations have to be different when faced with people around me. Whoever they are, my calculations in life, they have to be different. It means that if I'm living for God's purposes, living for true eternal life, loving him, then I can never view a neighbor in terms of how can this person benefit me? Whether they are good for my bottom line or bad. Whether they are a helpful business lead or a drag on my time. Whether they will make my life more bearable or whether they will make my life more hard. Whether they will make my life enjoyable at all. And this is hard, right? This is extremely hard. Who doesn't think this way? Our self-care culture teaches us that that's exactly what you have to think. Are people toxic or are they beneficial? That's it, right? If they're toxic, get rid of them. If they're beneficial, surround yourself with them. Jesus doesn't let us do that. He's not saying that you need to be uh, abused by people, but what he is saying is you need to care not about how they can benefit you, but how you can love them. We don't call someone a good Samaritan just because they take care of their kids and their friends and their family. Secondly, it means that I can't view a neighbor in terms of how might this person inconvenience me. Again, this is hard, really hard, even if they are needy even if they are in long-term difficulties, even if they respond in a way that I think they really shouldn't have responded, even if they are a little bit suspect, if I don't trust them fully, I can't just think of them in terms of how will they inconvenience my life. And it means instead that I must view everyone in my life in terms of how can I help this person. Am I wanting good for them? Am I willing to be involved in it? Am I willing to stop for it? 
Now, this doesn't mean enabling people no matter what. It doesn't mean just giving people what they want whenever they say something. It could mean saying no because you want to help just as much as it could mean saying yes because you want to help. But that's the whole point. right? It's about wanting to help your neighbor, wanting to love someone else in the way you naturally love yourself. There is no minimum number of people, no minimum number of dollars, no minimum percentage of your income, no minimum hours per week. Instead, if we are to show mercy and love and be the neighbors God wants us to be, we must actually be thinking and caring and acting for what others need. And you know, brothers and sisters, if that actually happens, it will be evident in our lives. Jesus says, go and do likewise. As we look at this challenge, this correction, this command, if we're honest, it's impossible. It seems impossible. It's one thing to say, love your neighbor as yourself. It's quite another thing to actually live it out. Especially if my neighbor means someone I might dislike or someone who might hate me or someone who is a stranger or someone who needs a lot or who might even hurt me in some way. When I read this story, you go and do likewise seems incredibly unrealistic. And maybe that's what you're thinking now. That seems crazy, right? It maybe seems even unfair that what ends up happening is just some people are taking on the burden of caring for everyone and anyone else. The Good Samaritan, after all, is just a guy in a made-up story acting in a way nobody really would, right? That's what I think. That's what we tend to think. If you're like me, then maybe you even object to this by saying, God, how can you expect me to live that kind of radical life of love based on a one-minute made-up parable? And if you feel that way too, then the answer to that is that a made-up story isn't all that we have. In fact, what the Bible tells us is that the only way that we can actually go and do likewise is if we truly understand that we can never justify ourselves. And furthermore, the only way we can be justified is through the work of the man who told this story, Jesus Christ himself. I already said, and you already know, that this is one of the greatest, most well-known of Jesus' parables. And one of the reasons for that is that throughout the history of the church, the most prominent teachers and interpreters of the Bible have often seen in this story of the Good Samaritan reflections of the gospel itself. That the story Jesus told was not just the story about a random man, but about every human being and the love and the mercy that we must receive if we are ever to go and do likewise. Let me explain. Just as the man fell in among the robbers and was stripped and beaten and left half dead, the Bible tells us that we as human beings all in Adam are fallen. The image of God has been beaten up and disfigured. The immortality we were meant for has been robbed. The goodness of much of the world has been stripped by sin. And as the Bible says, we are dead in our trespasses, helpless. And just as the priest and the Levite, the administrators of the Mosaic system, they came and they saw the man, but they did not help him. In the same way, the sacrificial system and ceremonial laws of the Mosaic covenant could not heal us from our sin. The Bible says in Romans 7 that the law itself did not bring life, but death. Romans 7.10, Paul wrote, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
And then in Hebrews 10.4, the writer says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But just as the Samaritan journeyed along the road and saw the man and helped him when he most needed it, the Bible says that at the right time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to help where the priests and the Levites and the law could not. Jesus journeyed to this earth to broken, fallen, wretched sinners, dead in our trespasses. He entered into our suffering and he helped us. (coughs) Romans 8. Paul says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus bound up our wounds. Jesus poured out his blood. He gave his body for the forgiveness of our sins and he brings us to the inn, so to speak, of his church, where we are ministered to and taken care of by his people and by his spirit. And just as the Samaritan left with the promise that he would one day return and pay whatever was spent, the interpreters of church history have seen that Jesus, too, has promised that he will one day return to all those whom he has saved, and he will heal us and bring us finally rejoicing into his kingdom. You see, brothers and sisters, if we are ever going to go and do likewise, if we're ever going to be men and women who actually can love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength and mind, if we're ever going to be able to love our neighbors as ourselves, then it really can only happen in one way according to Scripture. Not by doing what a Samaritan did in the story, but doing as Jesus, the true and greater good Samaritan, has already actually done for us. I started this sermon by asking if you've ever heard a story that really taught you something. I hope that you have in your life. (coughs) And if not, I hope over the next seven weeks you will. But I'm going to end it by simply letting this parable teach. In response to the question of a man who wished to justify himself and be accepted by God for his works, Jesus told this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. It's a story about our need for love. It's a story about a man who loved a stranger in need, who acted as a neighbor, who showed mercy. And it is also a story about a Savior who took on flesh and blood to become our neighbor, who loved us while we were still sinners, who healed us by his wounds, and who rose again to offer us the mercy of eternal, abundant, true life, not just one day in heaven, but starting even today. Let's pray.